the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents Worldview Media Podcast, where Gordon and Joyce Runyon view popular media through the lens of the biblical five-point covenant model to help believers appreciate and apply principles of exciting narrative and engaging storytelling. And here we are for another exciting episode of the Worldview Media Podcast. Uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> My word. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> I can't let him go on. <laughs> We're starting early tonight. <laughs> and we have to break out in song during this one. I don't know. All right, well, I'm the uh, guy trying to keep things in line. He's very trying. I am your host, Gordon Runyon. I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico. And with me in studio are two ladies who like Wolverine as a singer better than they like him as a superhero. What? Who said that? <laughs> who, who, what? Mom has never made that claim. I said his strength carries with him to all venues. <laughs> you like Wolverine no matter what. Sure, okay. Sure. All right. And uh, Jordan is here. Hello, Jordan. Hello. And so we're here to discuss. Do you want to say the name of this movie? Since you're the French student. Oh, all right. Somebody should say it once the really right way. And okay, then and I'll then just, just call it Les Mis after okay. that. Okay. Well, it would be something like. Really? <laughs> 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 no, hang on. That's just the clearing of the throat. Come on, French girl. Okay. It would be like Les Misérables. Oh. Whoa. All right. So, Les Mis. That's it. And uh, I have to say at the outset that I didn't hate this movie as much as I thought I was going to. Well, there you go. And I was under the mistaken impression that this was a musical, but it's really more like an opera. Yeah, it really is. In terms of how the music works. Cause yeah. Pretty much every line is sung. Yeah, and you if know. you look at the history of the show, it's it's more operatic in its history as well. Not every line is sung. Sure, every line is sung. No. Yeah. No. Name me one that wasn't sung. I have to think about it, because I don't know the movie that well, <laughs> but I'm sure Jordan knows some uh, where it's not sung. Well, at some point, somebody shouts the word cannons. <laughs> True. But that was still so. No, that was a shouting. Was cannons. No, he was just shouting <laughs> cannons. And there was, I don't know. They talk to each other every now and then. Yeah, but it's never anything substantial. Well, I guess I didn't notice that it wasn't all in song. It was all in song. I'm was pretty that? sure. Yeah, it mostly is. It's a sung through musical, is what right. it's called. It's it's. There's as much singing as there would be in an opera, I think. Probably. I think there's probably more in an opera. Why Why would you say that? Because that's pretty much the whole point of the opera, is that it's singing. <laughs> but that's what this was. I don't know what the rules are. Yeah, I don't know. Somebody tell us the opera rules. <laughs> We're so uncultured. <laughs> <laughs> when does a musical become an opera? It probably the fact that it wasn't sung in Italian yeah, has something to do away. with it, too. Well, also, I think a lot of the singing is, like, on the same note. So they're just, 
you know, there's not really a lot of movement to what they are singing. A lot of the times it's just, you know, me, I go over here to stand. But they have other things. They <laughs> well, have some soaring notes. Well, yeah, but I'm saying there's a lot of that repetitive note. And maybe that's how people sound when they talk. I don't know. I think I've heard that in operas too, though. In just dialogue, sometimes the even though the line is sung, it's it's kind of monotone. All right. Well, let's talk about your overall impressions of this movie. If I am guessing correctly, I believe that Jordan kind of likes this movie. Is that right? Yeah, no, I do kind of like it. <laughs> it's it's probably one of my favorite movies. Because. Favorite? Yeah. Why? Because. Yeah, why? Because I... of Wolverine? <laughs> no. <laughs> He's fun, though. It's fun to see Hugh Jackman all singy and stuff. But, um, I don't know. I, I think it's really, uh, there's something literary about it that I really appreciate. I like the whole, uh windiness of it and then i i don't know the music is really pretty i think and the songs a lot of them are very uh moving yeah 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 some pretty touching songs good lyrics uh i think the costuming is really nice the it's it's a grand film ah, you yeah. know it really is it, it's got a, a larger feel to it yeah, and so fun. yeah I, the sets are really nice you know and um, even the interaction between the characters is really good, and it's it's a pretty good movie for being so musical. <laughs> well, like I say, I didn't hate it as much as I thought I would. In fact, I was thinking at one point that having a new character come on the scene and sing a song, uh, kind of... It, uh, it's kind of exposition. They're kind of singing a song about who they are and what they do. And you couldn't get away with that in a normal movie where a character just comes on stage and begins to just tell you about themselves. You know, you couldn't get away with oh, it. Oh, yeah. But here you could, and I thought it was actually really effective that there's something about the textures of a song that are automatically different and deeper usually than regular dialogue and i i really felt like some of that was really was really good and as far as storytelling goes like uh uh the the master of the house guy and, oh, yeah. and his wife how their little song you watch this song for like three minutes and you know everything you need to know about them you know yeah. and uh you just couldn't get away with that in a lot of other types of fiction, I don't think. So that's one thing that kind of struck me. Uh, as y'all were talking about costuming and, and the setting, I was really, uh, I won't say I was grossed out, but throughout the movie, it's got, it just feels filthy. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with all the poor a, people. A reflection of what was going on. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, so it's not the posh French upper crust that we're looking at here. I mean, this is the the people that are forgotten and the ones that they'd like to turn a blind eye to. So, yeah, it's it's grimy and it's dirty. And right. you have people trying to dress up and, and even amidst all that to to look better than they are, you know, like with the master of the house one where 
they're they're trying to be fancy and frilly and really they're not. Yeah. Well And it's not the typical sort of Victorian poverty people that we see in like, you know, PBS specials or something when you have like poor people in the streets. Like they look poor but they don't look like they're destitute. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like there's really it's gross and it's real and gritty and ugh. Yeah, apparently uh the history, of course, Victor Hugo was writing the story about an actual rebellion that took place about a generation after the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. And and one of the things that precipitated the rebellion, I guess, from the little bit of reading I did, was a cholera outbreak. And I think that generally happens when stuff is filthy, and yeah. that's one of the things that's going to... Happened to you, and I just felt like you could feel that just yeah. watching it. It just well, it looking was at gross. at just the the mass populace of the lower caste people is that they weren't pretty, and you did want to look away from them. I mean, you wanted to say, "Oh, I really don't want to see you," because they were a little disturbing to see. Yeah. You know, they didn't have pretty skin. It wasn't just like they were some poor waif out there, a street urchin, where you're like, "Oh, you know." Uh, they looked bad, and <laughs> I'm sure had you been there, they probably smelt horrible, and it was just a a filthy place to be, and yeah, you know, yeah. hopeless, really, right. really hopeless. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. So, Jordan, this is one of your favorites, so I'm guessing you would give it a high A. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I like it a lot. It's an A for me. And you, Mama, what do you think? I like it. I would see it again. You have to know going into it, it is it is a longer movie. But I think if you just go in and say, okay, I'm going to sit here for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> Until I die. Uh, and, you know, through to the end of it, it really is, it's a pleasant movie. I, I've I would watch it again. I'd give it an A. Okay. I would, I'd probably give it a a B, pretty, but a solid B. It was it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I mean, I knew it was a good. It's a good story and a classic piece of fiction, so I knew it was going to be a better story. But I guess I was a little dubious of. The singing. The singing. Yeah, Wolverine. <laughs> Russell Crowe. Forget Wolverine. Yeah, Russell Crowe. <laughs> Wolverine versus the Gladiator. Uh, that's what it was. That's, that's a good movie. <laughs> All right. Well, then we will take our break and come back. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action 
for Christ and His kingdom. And we're back. Nobody's had any alcoholic beverages or anything like that. And questions about what we do during the break or what? Well, I thought the opening was kind of questionable. But, oh. but y'all are just high on life. There you go. That's what it is. Alright, so we come to the point of taking Les Mis and putting it through the lens of the five-point biblical covenant. And the first point in the covenant is transcendence. And here's where we start talking about who's ultimately in charge in this situation. There are several ways you can do that. Biblically, it's kind of about who's the creator, who's the redeemer, who's the ultimate lawgiver. And so, anything to say on what's the transcendent power that's present or maybe in the background in Les Mis? Jordan, any ideas? Well, it seems to be God. Okay, a Christian yeah, version. Yeah, some kind yeah, of yeah. Christian God. Right. Kind of a Catholic flavor well, to that. Well, yeah, probably. But, it's France. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, I don't think there's any question about the transcendence in this movie. It's Victor Hugo was writing a historical piece of fiction that... And it, the history took place in God's world. <laughs> and he has his characters very often appealing to God and thinking about thinking about the ramifications of living in God's world. And even down to, uh, you know, contemplating things like eternal judgment and right. things of that nature. So as far as as far as worldview goes, I thought it was clearly a Christian worldview in in yeah. back of this story yeah is that what you thought i would agree with that any thoughts mama well yeah i think overall that's i'd agree with that i think there were some uh differences of opinion between the characters as to what who, that meant who the ultimate authority was right what that yeah what that meant not just that god was in charge but uh ultimately where did authority come from and uh, what gave you the right or the ability to do anything. Right. So. Yeah, and that kind of leads us, since we're pretty unified on that, there's no big mystery. It's uh, the Christian God is is constantly looked to as the transcendent one who answers prayer and, and all of that in the movie and, and frankly, uh, directs history. And uh, so the God of the Bible was was there and present and explicitly so and so we move really i thought it was the interesting one of the interesting things in the movie uh, joyce just mentioned that when you get into section two of the covenant which is representation and and trying to determine who it is in the characters of the story who represents this transcendent worldview and really that's kind of one of the sources of conflict is that there are two major characters that are kind of vying for that position. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And who are they? They are, uh, it's Jean Valjean, who is Wolverine. Jean and, Valjean. And uh, Javert. 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 
Okay, and that would be Wolverine and, and Spartacus, yeah. respectively. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and explain their explain their two opposing views on how to represent God. Well, I think Javert, uh, Russell Crowe, right, is um, he's all about the law, and that the law is is supreme. And you cannot have mercy because you have the law. The law is merciful. And so if you've done a crime, then the law will give you what you deserve. And so he's very um, hard-lined about that. You know, the law is the ultimate authority. And if you do something wrong, well, then the law will say this is what your crime is. And this is what your penalty is. And then once you meet out what the law says you must do, then, then okay, you've paid your... Um, your fee for it, but you're still always a criminal. There's nothing more that you can do to better yourself. You're always going to be um, this bad person that nobody can trust because you're a lawbreaker. Right. So there's really no redemption no. in his No, view. there isn't. There's yeah. only the law, and, you know, you've got to hope you stay on the right side of it. Whereas, uh... Jean Valjean. Jean Valjean. Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> um... I think in the beginning he is kind of buying into what he's been told. You know, this officer of the law has told him, you'll always be a prisoner. This will always be your number. What is it? 24601. 24601. He doesn't even call him by a name. He's a number. And, you know, you'll take these papers with you and you'll show them wherever you are and they will tell them what you have done and nobody will ever trust you. And he, you know, he's like, well, okay, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. but." Um, True, true to what he said, wherever he went, he had to show those papers, and nobody wanted him there. You know, they couldn't trust him. No, you can't stay here. We can't. I have no work for you. You have to leave. You have to move on. And so, I think he really saw that as, I am a criminal. That's all I'll ever be until he wanders into a monastery, and is accepted there, and come in and let me give you some food and stay here with us for as long as you want. And. Uh, He's like, well, now's my chance. <laughs> right, right. Everybody's going to go to sleep, and I'm going to rob this place blind and move on and go on my way. And uh, so he does. In the middle of the night, he leaves, and the next morning, there's officers that come dragging him in. He's been beaten, obviously, and um, they tell the priest, uh, we found the guy who stole all your stuff. And, you know, he's he's there on the floor looking like, oh, great. Here I am. I'm going back. <laughs> and... And the priest says, oh, no, I'm sorry. I I had it wrong. I gave this man all these things, and he didn't steal anything from me. This, These are his. Yeah. And then not only that, uh, he has these really nice candlesticks that he says, you forgot the best. Let me give you these two. And, I, and that really changes him, that whole interchange, because he hadn't ever experienced that kind of, Love, I think, is what they call it in the... Yeah. You know, that love is what's changed them. Yeah. And it was just, you know, uh, this unconditional... You're you're a worthwhile being. And so... Uh, and that, that changed him. And so then he had that redemptive experience and um, went out from there saying, I can be different. I can be better. And... And I'm going to... Yeah. So 
In fact, the antagonist, the officer, what's his name? Javert? Javert. He actually, there's one point in the movie where he stands on a wall and he's singing into the sky, basically singing to himself about how he's determined to stay on the path of the righteous, you know. Yeah. And throughout the movie, he's shown that he isn't righteous. He's just, he's self-righteous and, and, uh, and very cruel and, and stony hearted and unyielding and, uh, without pity, without mercy. And, mm-hmm. and, but as he's singing, he thinks he's on the path of righteousness. Well, yeah. he's, he's on the side of the law. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. And then, but you don't have Jean Valjean saying the same sort of thing. He's not claiming anything for himself. He's just trying to live his life in light of the grace and mercy that he had been shown. Right. And that culminates in him uh, having the opportunity to take revenge on Javert and... And so he throws out his adamantium claws. <laughs> <laughs> takes his head off his shoulders. <sighs> wow. No. He, uh, of course, he decides in that moment to show Chavert mercy. And, and I like the fact that he stressed it was mercy with no strings attached. He wasn't making a bargain. He wasn't, he wasn't. Yeah doing good in the expectation that he would then yeah. that then Chavert would do something good for him. Yeah. He was, this is what I am doing. You do what you feel like you have to do, but I am right now setting you free. Right. And I thought that was very powerful. And, uh, and well, Chavert obviously did too at the end. You know. Yeah. yeah. Couldn't take it. Couldn't handle it. <laughs> right. He actually said that uh, in showing him mercy, Jean Valjean had had killed him. He destroyed who he was up until that point. Right. So that was very interesting. But it's a uh, man a thoroughly Christian message, I think. You know, uh, when the priest handed Jean Valjean the candlesticks on top of everything that he had stolen. The passage of scripture that came to my mind was the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus saying, if a man steals your cloak, give him your coat also. And if he strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. You really had there the priest turning turning the other cheek. And though he had been stolen from, he actually gave the thief more with the intention of keeping him from suffering uh, punishment. And... You know, that's really powerful stuff. I'm convinced that that's that's a really overlooked portion of what we call spiritual warfare as Christians. That, uh, you know, we can talk about prayer and and preaching and all of that. But unless and until we're able to show in our everyday lives that we really are different sorts of people. And we really do do our best to obey the commandments that Jesus has given us in terms of mercy and gratitude and uh, even just simple hospitality. Yeah. I think that's spiritual warfare. And you saw that, I think I saw that illustrated in that, in that movie on, in several different occasions, you know? Yeah. Jordan, you have anything to say about representation or? Uh, no, I guess that's been pretty thoroughly covered. Okay. And the thing with the, Jean Valjean is that he went out from there and then continued to 
redeem other people. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just, okay, now I'm good and I'm okay. He was really, he was a new person. Right. He really was a yeah. new person. Right. And, and he wasn't content and just like, okay, I'm a good person now. <laughs> right. And I'm going to do these good things for other people. I mean, he went and uh, with Fontaine. 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 <laughs> and Cosette. And um, even with... Mauricio? Marius. Marius. Ah, I did watch the movie. I did. It was like a foreign language. <laughs> but, I mean, he just, he continued to go out and be the person who was being changed in everybody else and, and right. putting himself at risk and doing all that, right. too. It in was costly for him. Including the time when somebody had been falsely arrested under his old name, under Jean Valjean. And yeah. And if he had just not said anything, his whole, the warrant that was out for mm -hmm. him would have gone away. And, mm -hmm. and he just decided, I can't do this. I, after the good that has been shown me, how can I see this other guy suffer? and Be uh, condemned for what I've done. Right. Yeah. And so I think the theological term for that is that he was paying it forward. <laughs> That's a theological term. Theolog <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, I Classic see. Christian doctrine. <laughs> Pay it forward, bro. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> so, I mean, there's just a, really a lot of rich representation in that character for grace and mercy that was just outpoured and 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 saying I've done bad things and I've done wrong things and I will pay those consequences. Right. Yeah. yeah, and he never did really try to get away from uh, consequences of the stuff that he knew he had done right. that was wrong. Yeah. Like he he looked at those and he was like, yeah, I did that and I I do. If you're going to arrest me, then that's fine. I deserve that, and I did do those things and all of that. Well, without thinking about it, we've kind of slipped into Section 3 of the Covenant where we're talking a lot about ethical dilemmas. Ethics is the third section, and we've kind of talked about it and uh, just organically slid into <laughs> talking about <laughs> ethical dilemmas. You know, will he own up to who he is? Will he take revenge, or will he show mercy? And... Uh, there's quite a few ethical dilemmas in here that Jean Valjean faces. Right. And, uh, and it was very interesting. Like Jordan was just saying, the way that he routinely handled them after this life-changing incident in the convent, coming to know something of the love of God, that his routine way of handling these things was to own up and take responsibility. And in certain cases, it was risking my life for the sake of this other one right and it might not even be somebody he knows or yeah he doesn't know them very well but he knows i have to be willing to suffer right. everything for yeah. this one right yeah do you have any other ideas on ethics or another uh, dilemma to highlight i guess uh i guess one of the other big ethical dilemmas would pro is probably like Fontaine with her whole situation because mm -hmm. she's runs into some hard times and has to right. make some choices which don't go too well yeah right yeah right so there's that too so it's interesting that you sort of see other characters yeah other characters facing the same sort of like they also have to make this choice and how do they make their choices versus how Jean Valjean can makes his choices and stuff 
Well, I think you see that as well with the revolutionaries, you know, that they're all banding together and, and there comes a point where they're, you know, they're thinking, oh, the people are going to rise up and stand with us and we'll be okay, where they realize, okay, nobody's going to stand up with us. <laughs> right. What do we do now? And so that's a hard place to be in, right. you know, when you have to make a stand and you're thinking you're not going to be standing alone and, uh, you yep. know, and for the one with the M, what's his name? Marius. 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 Mm, very good. Well, I think, <laughs> I think there's another theological concept there, the danger of trusting the crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I was, like I say, I was just reading some historical background. And when this general died, that they considered the people's general, and all the lower class people liked him and thought he was their advocate. When he died, then there were tens of thousands of people accompanying his his uh, funeral procession. Mm-hmm. And the rebels believed that whole crowd was going to rise up and all they needed was a spark and it would be like tinder and mm. right. they would once they saw them rising up and and uh doing the deed this whole crowd would join them but historically uh i guess in their rebellious attempt at uh they said the last rebel gun was silenced less than 24 hours after the whole thing began yeah so the crowd just went home and uh Sometimes I think that in America that's exactly how it would go. You know, <laughs> if somebody got fed up enough to get out into the streets, well, it, you see it happening for you know bad causes, people rioting over this and that, and, mm-hmm. and they all kind of wonder how come it's only us out here. Well, because well, they're a little crazy, right? <laughs> but it really does come down to that in America, the people who need who would need to rise up if there was going to be an insurrection that was successful. All the people that you would need to do that have already got jobs and they're just busy. You know? <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. You've got a ton of people who are sitting around doing nothing, but they're not the ones you want leading a popular insurrection. They're just, you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that was a nice rabbit trail. Yeah. <laughs> well, but there there's a lot of ethical issues throughout the movie. You know, even with uh, Javier and him on this constant pursuit of this one man. Right. You know, he's a... Uh, he was his white whale. I guess so. I guess so. Because he, he's, you know, a lot of time has passed. And even when he sees him, he he doesn't believe that could possibly be the guy. Because, you know, the reputation of the man that he's looking at isn't... He can't be... You know, this prisoner that I'm chasing down and he even admits to him, hey, I had somebody look into you. I'm sorry. It was wrong. Uh, You can go and complain about me. (laughs) And then even then he's like, no, you're just doing your job. Right. You know, so more than once he was like, I'm going to, yeah, Yeah. I don't want this to go any farther. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Yeah, I think we've mentioned the ethical things and so the fourth section of the covenant sanctions dr gary north always likes to say a law without a sanction is really just a suggestion you know if if you know there's a posted speed limit but you also know 
the government doesn't write tickets for speeding here, this, then the speed limit is whatever you feel like doing. It's a cow's know. opinion. Right. right. It's a moo point. It's a moo point. <laughs> That's right. And and so in the covenant that God has made, he doesn't just give us ethics, but he also promises that there will be rewards for keeping his commandments and also rewards for breaking them. Now, there'll be positive and negative rewards, but uh, when I was in the Navy, it was always kind of funny to read when somebody went to captain's mast, which was non-judicial punishment where you get in trouble and the CO would just, the captain would hand down your punishment. It would show up in the, in the news the next day as so-and-so went to captain's mast for dereliction of duty or whatever and was awarded reduction <laughs> in rate oh. to E5 or something like that. And that was always a, a funny turn of phrase. Whatever the punishment was, that was his award. And uh, I always kind of think of that when we come to the sanctions section. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and so here's where we ask, what did people get rewarded? And I think what we're shooting for in this section is, and when we think narratively back to the top, and we think about what the transcendent power is and what the law is, and who represents that transcendent power, then in the terms established in the story, do the people involved in the story get what is consistent in exchange for their actions? And so what do you think? We have some major characters who did kind of get awarded one way or the other. Yeah. What do you think? Well... The one thing that always sticks out to me is that those two terrible people, the the Tenardiers is their name. The uh, master, the master of the, the house, house people. The yeah. <laughs> is that they end up just fine, really. Even after all the terrible stuff that they do. And I always feel like that's really super unfair. Looking at everything else in the film. That they sort of turn out alright. And they even say in that last little song that they sing, you know, like... You clear away everything, and here we are. We're still fine, and we're going to be okay. And I'm just like, that's just wrong. It's not right that this has happened to them. Yeah, but I think they're such despicable characters that it's almost the sort of thing that you leave them to themselves in their situation, and, you know, who would really want to be them in, in that? I mean, yeah. Well, which is really sad because their daughter died. Right. Yeah. And they didn't seem to, you know. And so they did lose something that I would have thought would have been very precious to them. And so their their whole value system was skewed to begin oh, yeah. with. It was never yeah. about the things that are really important. Right. You know, it was all about the fleeting things that um, would slip through their fingers and would continue to do so. And so even though you don't see them being um, punished, they're certainly never going to be better. Right. Yeah, I guess I would say you don't see them suffer the civil penalty for their thievery. Yeah. But they are definitely under God's curse throughout the whole thing, you That's know. That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, the major ones that I think we're talking about is Chauvert and Jean Valjean, and technically, they both kind of wind up in the same place in terms of, you know, death comes to everybody, the righteous right. and the unrighteous. They both wind up dead, but... 
but like I say, there's a Christian worldview going on here, and and so the afterlife, yeah, and punishment and reward in the hereafter is a live option in this movie, and right. and in fact, you see it explicitly. Yeah, yeah, Javert does not get to go and sing in the big barricade. He flushes himself down the yeah, giant toilet. He does. Right? He sure does. <laughs> right. That's true. And then uh, it's rough. <laughs> right, but Jean Valjean does. Ascends. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, he's a man who has nothing at the beginning of the movie. And at the end, he's got a, a daughter, and he's got a son, and he's got people who, who really do love him. And just even lots of people that whose lives he's touched in a positive way throughout his lifetime. Yeah. You know, I don't think he sees that in himself, but it, it's definitely there. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't. You know, I don't think he would say, oh, look at all I've done at the end, because he was just still trying to do the right thing and saying, I can't be associated with Cassette because of who I am, who I really am. He doesn't want to stain her. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, right. and in the in the novel, I believe he leaves before the wedding, because if he had signed it under the name that he had assumed, the marriage would have been like... Invalidated. invalid and stuff and he didn't want to put them in that position by like not signing the right name even though this is what he signed on all this other stuff but so <laughs> yeah he he leaves to to do the right thing for yeah. Cosette and, and make sure that she's okay well and then Chauvert he did flush himself down a giant metaphorical toilet at the end <laughs> but uh it it was an example to me. There is a biblical concept that the wicked eventually bring the curse willingly upon themselves. Uh, you know, uh, being childless, biblically speaking, is a curse. But then you see the wicked in the Bible offering their children to Molech. You know, they're they're cutting off their own posterity. Mm -hmm. And here in America, we have wicked people who, you know, are aborting their next generation and stuff. They're God doesn't have to do anything miraculous to curse them. They're already cursing themselves by cutting off the next generation. And and you kind of see that with Chauvert, that he, at some point, he realizes that this path of the righteous, that he has determined that he's going to walk, and being on that path is its own reward. Uh, he's determined that he's fallen off and can never get back on, and he's fallen from whatever high place he thought he occupied and so he pronounces the curse on himself he kind of reminded me of uh, Judas Iscariot you know a lot of preachers have said that they the problem with Judas is once he realized what he did wrong he hung himself on the wrong tree if he had if you know theoretically yeah. if if he had repented and <clears throat> gone to the tree where Christ was crucified you know, theoretically, there would have been uh, repentance and, and forgiveness available to him there. But he hung himself on the wrong tree and pronounced a curse upon himself and made himself a curse. Mm -hmm. And you kind of see that with Chauvert. It, you know, Jean Valjean experienced mercy and change and redemption. Uh, it would seem well, like you could, with... he could see that maybe and come around, but he decided... With Javert, I think he was, he was fooling himself as to who he was. Oh, yeah. You know, I think he even admits to Jean Valjean that you know I yeah. was, 
just like you, but I'm not that person anymore. And I think he was always about you are who you are and you cannot change. You know, you're a criminal, you go out, you're always going to be a criminal. But deep down, he knew who he was. And so all this other stuff seems like it was just a facade that maybe he started to believe himself. He was kind of a 19th century version of the Pharisees in, in yeah. some ways. You know, self-made, self-righteous. And, and always, yeah. you know, when he's doing his little songs, he's on high places, walking <laughs> on the edge. Oh, yeah, I didn't Just always that. close right. to stepping yeah. off. You know, just to lose your balance a little bit and you would you would plummet. Yeah. And that's how, I think that's really how he lived. And he thought he was on the solidness of the whole walkway when he wasn't. He was always on the edge. Yeah. Being ready, you know, just ready to, to tilt and tip off and, and be gone. And, yeah. and I think that um, the last thing that um, Jean Valjean did by setting him free and having mercy on him, just really undid him. Right. Yeah. Destroyed his whole setup, his whole self-evaluation. His whole deal. His whole deal, deal. was done. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been easier if he had just killed him. <laughs> right. Yeah. But well, he said wrong. that, right? Yeah. He, he said well, yeah. that himself. I mean, he couldn't do that. No. He was never the character that. that he was, but it would have been easier for um, Javert just to have died, <laughs> you know, just, just put me out of my misery and, you know, I'll have at least been killed by a, a criminal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. He did at least be a martyr that way. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Oh, let's move on to section five. We've done a lot of talking already. Oh boy. But section five is succession in the biblical covenant. And this is meant to explain how this covenant is going to continue. Does this outfit have a future? This group that I've hooked up with, how are we going to sustain this? And for me, I felt like the that was pretty obvious that Jean Valjean had been such an influence on Cosette and Marius, Marius, that I think by the time he departed, they were already kind of stepping up and living their lives the way he had lived his right. in terms of responding to the grace of God and, mm -hmm. and mercy and forgiveness. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's made pretty clear. Okay. Well, and I think you've got to remember, too, that Cosette herself was actually redeemed from a bad situation. Sure. You like know. being bought out of slavery. Exactly. And, yeah. and you know, she wasn't so small that she didn't remember that, yeah. I'm sure. So uh, even though he was a probably a very secretive type of man, <laughs> she still, he was a good man and he loved her. And, you know. Um, she called him her father. Yes. By the time it was all done. Yes. Yeah, right. And so, yeah, I think you see that his legacy goes on through them. Yeah. And I exactly. wonder where they put the candlesticks. <laughs> yeah, he did keep those candlesticks with him always. I felt like he gave them back. Weren't they back in well, the covenant? He, he or hit the a convent. <laughs> the covenant. Yeah. <laughs> well, because he got them, and then you see him in every place that he's lived, and he obviously took him with, took them yeah. with him when he left, and they were up on the altar where they sort of belonged by the right. time he had died. Yeah, I thought he kind of gave them back eventually. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Anything else that you want to say about this movie that you haven't said yet? Uh, well. You know, even as we've talked about it, it really is a good movie. There oh, yeah. is singing. Right. There, there's, well, some a, of the songs there's some choreography. Really, some of the songs are pretty good, though. 
Yeah. That, oh, yeah. That song that they sang in conjunction with the rebellion about your heart's beating in tune with the drums or something. Uh, what yeah. was that? That's Do You Hear the People Sing. Do You Hear the People Sing. Do you hear the people sing? <laughs> Go on. That, that's actually an emotional... It's oh, kind it's of a, rousing. It's a stirring sort yeah, of song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not that I want it on my iPad or something like that. But well, some is it on your MP3 player? I don't have an MP3 player, but it, it's it, on but my computer. It is on your computer. Uh, yeah, all but right, yeah, right. I don't, I don't have any. She's I can't, kinda, I don't have any memory to put no music memory. anywhere. She's lost her mind. <laughs> You're as bad off as a little street urchin. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> you have no memory on your phone. Nope, nothing. That's like half a step from cholera. I know. Yes. That's what they All tell right. me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I think we're done. Time for the adult beverages. All right. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> now, this is a pretty good movie, and uh, we did have somebody volunteer to do the Braveheart podcast with me, and uh, so I think that'll be coming next after this show. And so that'll be a good thing. I might listen in just to. Uh, you're welcome to still be on here it. Here and there. Uh, you just. I don't have to watch it. I've seen it it's a been few 20 times. Twenty years since you saw it. Some things you don't forget. Twenty years. You probably don't even remember that guy that gets his leg hacked off in the. Oh, that <laughs> happened on Vikings one time. Oh. <laughs> There's some things I don't need. I think, to I think you should watch it again. I just, I just feel like. You're missing something. All right. All the hacking. <laughs> hacking for freedom. <laughs> All right, y'all. So uh, thanks for tuning in. Worldview Media Podcast. World Media View Casting Pod. <laughs> Worldview Media Podcast. <laughs> oh, boy. We're really stoned, so... <laughs> All right. So thank you all. We'll talk to you next time. God bless you all. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Worldview Media Podcast. Please visit reconstructionistradio.com to check out the other podcasts in our network and to download our free audiobooks.